The scripture that we're about to hear is a rare instance of Jesus at home, back in Nazareth after his earliest travels in the region. He's created enough of a stir, apparently, that some officials from Jerusalem have come all the way out here into the sticks to accuse him of some kind of dark sorcery, specifically casting out demons with some kind of demonic power of his own. Now, if we're really to understand what Jesus is about in the context of Mark's gospel, then we need to establish something that might make us a little bit uncomfortable. Namely, that for Mark and for Jesus, there are dark forces at work in the universe that are very real. You can interpret that as you will, whether you literally believe in demons or you understand them as a metaphor for our lesser angels. But this is important to establish early on because Jesus spends a whole lot of time in Mark performing exorcisms. Jesus knew that in a sense this whole world is possessed, if not by demons, then by the evil that men do. And the only way to redeem the world is to name those forces and cast them out one by one. The reading is from Mark. Then he went home and the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him for people were saying, He's gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping always with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. That's the devil's music, she told me, aghast at the cassette tape I'd brought to school. I still remember this conversation rather vividly all these years later. I remember uh, the little corner of the eighth grade classroom we were standing in, and the way the light from the windows fell on the crisp white sleeves of her school uniform. I remember that her name was Skylar, and that she loved to ride horses. I remember all of this, I think, because she was so willfully ignorant that I wanted to pull my hair out. You don't get it, I replied, tapping the plastic cover of the Black Sabbath cassette tape in my hand. A lot of their songs are actually a condemnation of the devil. So they do sing about the devil, she retorted. Well, yeah, they did, I told her, but they didn't worship him. You know, these were songs about why war and hatred are dangerous and destructive and how love offers a better way. And went on to explain that, in fact, a lot of the material is critical of what you might call demonic influences, anti-war anthems, 
warnings about the dangers of drugs and nuclear weapons, and surprisingly nuanced theological explorations. I even had some lyrics written down because we were supposed to bring uh, a song to school that day that had a positive message. And this is what I brought. A tune from Black Sabbath's 1972 album, Master of Reality, that went like this. Could it be you're afraid of what your friends might say if they knew you believe in God above? They should realize before they criticize that God is the only way to love. If it so much as mentions Satan, she decided, then that means it's satanic. Had I been quicker on my feet in those days, I'd have suggested that by that logic, the Bible is also satanic. <laughs> but that was an argument I was not going to win. Being a heavy metal aficionado in a Catholic middle school caused a lot of problems for me. This was at the height of the so-called satanic panic when TV preachers were telling everyone about the spiritual perils of rock and roll music. And I was so determined to prove them wrong that I'd frequently find myself in these uh, arguments with my classmates. I also tried to convince the parish priest at my school. He would not give me the time of day. He didn't even bother to teach me the error of my ways uh, because I was a Protestant and even worse, a Congregationalist and therefore already doomed. <laughs> I think back on these conversations every time I see this scripture, though, where Jesus is accused of casting out demons in the name of demons, to which Jesus replies, how can Satan cast out Satan? How can a condemnation of Satan be satanic? Even though Jesus is clearly preaching love and fighting the powers of darkness with everything he's got. He gets slapped with this ridiculous label because people don't want to know what he's all about. And people always seem to need a scapegoat for things that they don't understand. Now, Jesus seems to be especially interested in demonic possession. Some of you know this happens to be an academic interest of mine. I even gave a talk at a church conference once on the subject of the devil out in Cape Cod. Sadly, I'd spent the week before in Miami in July, and uh, I got a horrible sunburn. So when I showed up to give this talk, my skin was bright, bright red. And I was also sporting a goatee at the time, <laughs> which in retrospect may have been a poor choice. Not hard to be taken seriously, you know. Um, I don't actually believe in the devil in the traditional sense of the word, with the pitchfork and the horns, and I think preachers who claim that rock music is the devil's work should keep it to themselves. But that doesn't mean there aren't dark forces in the universe in some form or other. I don't claim to have all the answers about that. And it doesn't mean that there isn't some genuinely disturbing stuff out there. I owned another album uh, once, for instance, that was actually said to be cursed. It wasn't even heavy metal, more of a progressive jazz fusion thing, but there were unsettling stories about its production. You see, while they were touring in the Middle East, the guitarist from the Mars Volta purchased a Ouija board from a little curio shop in the older part of Jerusalem. And playing with the board became sort of a tradition 
while they were on the road, unwinding every night after the show with a few beers and some questions for whatever presence might be listening. And supposedly they contacted an entity that called itself Goliath and stayed in touch with it for several months. But the the messages from the board became uh, more cryptic and eerie as time wore on. And when they returned to the States to record their new album, things got weird. They suffered inexplicable equipment failures. Their studio repeatedly flooded. And perhaps most troubling of all, their loyal sound engineer up and quit in an inexplicable panic. I'm not going to help you make this record, he told them. You're trying to do something very bad with this record. You're trying to make me crazy, and you're trying to make people crazy. And he left. And finally, the guy who bought the Ouija board in the first place broke it in half and buried it in a secret location, hoping to break whatever curse they brought on themselves. I guess it worked because uh, after that, the album, which they called The Bedlam and Goliath, was completed without further incident. But I'll tell you, it's still the creepiest jazz fusion record I've ever heard, with the exception of everything produced by Steely Dan. Sorry. (laughs) I don't know if there's any connection, but the biblical Goliath was a giant, a conqueror, a strong man. And whether or not this Goliath that haunted the band was real or just an urban legend, Goliath, I think, is a fine metaphor for the strong, even demonic influences that lay claim to our world. In this text from Mark, Jesus tells us this very bizarre parable about tying up a strong man and plundering his house. And most people have understood that as a metaphor for taking the world back from whatever sinister forces have occupied it. And that is what Jesus is all about, redeeming the world and reclaiming it for humanity. In one of his letters to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul makes a cryptic reference to what he calls the God of this world who blinds people to the true light and glory of Christ. And Paul's implication here is that while God created the world, it's been seized by something else, ruled by something else. Some demonic force, Jesus' proverbial strong man, has taken possession of it, occupied it, governing the world with fear and violence and greed. The theologian C.S. Lewis took that idea and ran with it, uh, updating it for the era he lived in. Back in the 1940s, at the height of the Second World War, he was recording radio programs for the BBC about faith and spirituality. And no doubt influenced by events on the world stage, he described a spiritual conflict in the world that he likened to a rebellion, a resistance, against Paul's God of this world. Enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is, Lewis claimed. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. One has to wonder if Lewis might have been inspired by the French resistance, in particular, during the war. 
When the Third Reich occupied the country in 1940, things carried on more or less as usual for a little while. Parisians had to get used to seeing swastikas waving from the top of the Eiffel Tower and emblazoned across the National Assembly, had to endure the sight of Nazi soldiers marching in formation down the Champs-Elysees, but their lives carried on. Gradually, though, over time, the new regime began to implement increasingly brutal and draconian policies. Food and labor shortages, malnutrition, and rampant inflation haunted the populace. And before too long, some of them began to resist. They couldn't fight the occupying forces outright, head to head. They'd already lost that battle in the field. So instead, they decided to tie the oppressor's hands via acts of sabotage. They slashed the tires of convoy trucks. They severed phone lines, disrupting enemy communications. And they waged a war of words against Nazi propaganda, circulating their own underground literature amongst the towns and cities of their land. These resistance fighters tied up the strong man. And when the Allies invaded Normandy, they plundered his house and took back what was stolen. Much like the French, Jesus can't just attack the proverbial strong man head on. Not because Jesus was too weak or not strong enough, but because violence was antithetical to Jesus' whole ethos. Jesus could have toppled Rome or the devil or any other empire by force, but that was not his way. Then it's not our way. Violence is not our way. The way is to name evil, to tie it up, and to rob it of its power. And from that little house in Nazareth to that end, Jesus mapped out a campaign of sabotage. Except instead of slashing tires and cutting the electricity, we reject hatred and take away its power. Instead of meeting clandestinely in cafes or back alleys, we meet here at church to plan our next move. Instead of circulating underground magazines, we preach the gospel. Echoing C.S. Lewis, New Testament scholar Matt Skinner writes that Mark depicts Jesus' mission as an invasion of territory held by an enemy. That territory provides a comfortable habitat for tyrants and the loyalties they demand. For the kingdom of God to become realized, it must displace other kingdoms. So what then are these other kingdoms that he speaks of? What are the forces that clench this world in their unholy grasp? What really is the devil's music. You won't find it on a Black Sabbath album, I'll tell you that much. That is barking up the wrong tree. The devil's music is more deadly. It's the awful voice that spews racist and sexist and homophobic and Islamophobic poison. It's the staccato rhythm of gunfire and bullets that are sprayed in school hallways. It's the haunting melody Children crying out, children torn from their parents at border checkpoints. It's the erratic scribbling of signatures upon legislation that hurts the poor, the dissonant chords of war, the carefully choreographed ballet of lies, the symphony 
of destruction orchestrated by the so-called gods of this world, the proverbial strongman. There was another song on that same Master of Reality album that I brought to school back in the eighth grade. It was a song called Lord of This World. It's worth mentioning here, I think. One of the verses goes like this. The world was made for you by someone above, but you chose evil ways instead of love. You made it master of the world where you exist. The soul it took from you was not even missed. And these words offer an interesting angle on this whole sermon, namely that whatever evil forces hold sway in this world didn't have to take it by force. We let them in gladly and gave them the keys to the house. Jesus came to help us take it back. The very first line of this scripture says it all. Then Jesus went home. For while there are powerful forces that lay claim to the world, Christ has always been the true master of the house. But which master do we serve? Amen.